Welcome to 3R Educational Solutions, the podcast that empowers educators to create thriving learning environments with social-emotional learning at the core. Hi, welcome to 3R Educational Solutions. We have Angel here and Cassie, Andrea, and Dr. Mel. So I'm just going to let everybody go around. We're going to kind of do a teacher's panel and um, after Dr. Mel tells you about herself, we're just going to take turns and kind of pick in Dr. Mel's brain. We will also have Courtney Treese joining us. Hopefully she has some techno- technology difficulties. So hopefully she'll be able to hop on soon, but we'll just go over here and start. Let's start with uh, Cassie and go ahead and introduce yourself to Dr. Mel. Well, my name is Cassie Lupins and I've been an educator for about eight years. Um, I left the classroom after last year, but I was a music educator. And so throughout this last year, I've been spending time learning sound therapy and how sound therapy can be beneficial and now how it can be used in the classroom. So that was, and I taught primarily third through fifth grade uh, music. So the upper elementary kiddos. So Andrea, you want to tell her a little bit about yourself? Yes, I am Andrea McConaughey. I have been teaching for 25 years. Um, I was 15 years in our alternative at-risk program, and now I am five years into um, art education, seven through 12, and I am in Iowa, so I am in a different state, so there's little differences there also, but welcome to the show. Thank you, and Cassie, where are you? I am in Green Valley. I taught in Odessa, so I'm right outside of Kansas City. So I'm kind of still, because you're you're from Kansas City, is that right? Yes, I'm in Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah, so we're all kind of around the same, except for Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> you make it a very strong Midwestern flavor for today's show. Yes. <laughs> but we're in the center of the country. I think we're applicable for to everyone, don't you think? Oh, hands down. Yeah, yes. absolutely. And Courtney, um, if she is able to join us, um, she is she's an elementary teacher, uh, mostly primary, and um, she really specializes in uh, data diagnostician. She's on that, and she just got a new role in her school district as a SPED director. I think is what she said. She just found out, so she's super busy. <laughs>
Dr. Mel, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. I, I would like to start by thanking you, Angel, for the invitation and for you, Cassie and um, Andrea, for, for being here. Uh, certainly, I think that having um, teachers on the panel will make this very relevant to other teachers who you know, might listen in the future. Um, so my background is in um, learning theory. I got a degree, two degrees from the University of Kansas, one in early childhood education and the second one on learning theory. And I feel like my um, education at KU was exceptional. I had great professors, uh, an amazing early childhood program where I was able to both practice, do research and supervise. Um, my entire career is now 35 plus years and I uh, was fortunate enough because my degree is in developmental psychology to work from very small children, three and four year olds, all the way through executives. And I have to say that there is a lot of overlap in how people learn, in how they approach uh, challenges and um, how they make themselves happy. And so I, I feel like being in the two different, I guess, industries um, helped me to cement some of the thinking that I have today about the challenges that children with early trauma have and how to address those. So, um, you know, in terms of education, I, I was uh, head of school of a, an independent school here in Overland Park, which was a pre-K through eighth grade. Um, I've taught at universities. I've taught in um, the corporate world. I've done executive coaching. So it, even though some of it doesn't sound like it fits together, it actually does. Because like I said, it's all one continuum. Um, and I got interested in uh, early childhood trauma after that uh, very insightful research in 1995 where we discovered ACEs and the long-term effect of, the, of those in predominantly a middle-class white uh, subject group. And so we can deduce from that that if it's difficult when you have the resources, it's that much more difficult when you don't have the resources. And children with environmental trauma not only have don't have the resources, um, but they have a lot of daily challenges. Um, and we'll go into that more in depth when we go into the questions that you all asked. But I really, really enjoyed reading. So um, let's see, anything else? Personally, uh, I have a son. I um, am enjoying, uh, uh, you know, yoga and exercise. And I wish I was more of a musician like the two of you. But I do love to listen to music. Uh, and I totally believe in the therapeutic value of what music can do for everyone. But children who have early experiences that are harmful, I think music is soothing and it's healing and um, the same with art. So I applaud both of you for going into that area of education. I think you can do a lot of healing and wonderful things. Um so that's a, that's about me. I, you know, I'm pretty laid back in general. Um, I can't get very passionate about this subject. 
So if I start speaking very fast and my Spanish accent comes out, you'll know <laughs> that that's my indicator that I'm really getting into it. <laughs> well, um, Dr. Mel, you talked about um, ACEs. So we've actually had a two-part um, section, I guess, or uh, what do we, a show about ACEs. So um, this just kind of follows suit and perfectly with what we've been talking about. Um, I guess one of the first things we, I, I did some study, I found you on LinkedIn. So, and I was like, wow, I really like her post. You, you talked about happiness. And um, from there, I was like, well, I'm going to check out her website and just reach out to her. Your website talks about some things that have changed over the recent years. And um, in particular, my question for you is, how do you feel education and like social emotional skills, especially in children um, or our students at school age have changed in the recent years, like uh, leading up to COVID and then COVID? I think for those of us that start in early childhood education, a lot of the curriculum has always focused on the importance of social emotional development. Uh, it's part of Head Start. It's part of Montessori. Just about every model that you can think of is very laden, heavily laden with early uh, education around emotions. What happened with COVID was that it caused trauma in just about everyone. So before, when we talked about ACEs, there were the original 10 and then it was expanded to the environmental um, and historical and uh, family traumas. Uh, so it expanded that way. But it was still seen as something that happened to a group of people, but not really to everyone. I think there was lots of um, people who said, yeah, 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 but that's not me. But I think after COVID, uh, everybody has experienced trauma. And the way that we know that from data is that the mental health indicators have dropped tremendously and um, suicide ideation and actually uh, carrying it through, which is very sad, has increased. And so there is now more of a an understanding of the importance of mental health in education uh, and so the reason that I like to write about happiness and mindfulness and learning is because those practices and skills help us to learn faster, ret re retain information longer, and they're quite frankly very enjoyable to incorporate into the classroom. So it makes the classroom more of a mentally healthy situation. And if teachers now, um, can think through that this is a new area for them to practice, and that is to make their classrooms mentally healthy, then obviously learning can happen faster and better, as I said. I think prior to COVID, it was something that the counselors did. It was something that you sent children to therapy, uh, but it I don't think it was really a part of the lesson planning that teachers are doing now. I think now they understand that they have to put in some uh, things in the classroom that make it uh, not just pleasant. Um, that's part of it. But I think that increases 
the sense of responsibility um, that children might have. Uh, the uh, as I we will talk in a few minutes, um, the importance of critical thinking and executive function skills. We used to think that those were like soft skills that happened on the side, but I think now they 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 come in center. You have to have those if you really want your children to learn. So I think that's been one of the biggest uh, changes. Uh, in addition to that, I think teachers have come to understand the importance of self-care because burnout is very real uh, in, a, in a situation where there is a lot of stress and trauma, especially long-term. And I, I believe that now we all understand that the trauma from COVID is long-standing, right? We've had it now for a few years. I don't think it's totally gone away uh, because the children, as I said, are having problems with mental health and therefore that shows up in your classrooms in terms of dysregulated behaviors and children not following rules and, um, you know, children not understanding the importance of forming friendships. Uh, and so now I think that has changed a lot. Yeah. And it's a good change, right? Um, if anything good came out of COVID is the emphasis now that we have on mental health and the importance of teachers. I was just going to add in that since that was my question, this is Angel uh, talking. Um, just in lesson planning, you mentioned that pre-COVID, I became an instructional coach in 2016. So my last uh, year in the classroom, but lesson planning alone, when I left public school to go to uh, the private organization where we dealt specifically with kids who had uh, severe trauma and neglect, um, I started having teachers reaching out to me during COVID and right after that, um, 2022, what are you guys doing out there? We need, to, I need some strategies because we're seeing it here and, you know, you're used to it every day. What are you doing? So yeah, it, it was a huge uh, shift, I think, just in your daily lesson planning and, and routines. I agree. Um, you can have a fantastic lesson plan and that is that you have like projects and you have just the right introduction and you differentiate it so that everybody's engaged. But if you haven't looked into strategies to help children focus that, that have difficulty focus, focusing, and if um, you don't understand that children just can't sit still if they have early trauma and you engage in, you know, corrective action as opposed to supportive action, then you're going to get more dysregulation. So in your lesson plans, in addition to differentiation, you have to have, I think, some ideas for classroom calming, for having a place to send children when they need to have private time, not time out, just private time, which is different. Time out and private settling time is very different. That has to be in lesson plans now. I agree yeah. so much. And I'm just listening to you and I'm like, yes, preach. Like you're just saying what exactly needs to be happening, um, especially being in the classroom pre-COVID and post-COVID. And I feel like you're talking about the mental health. And I feel like we're just now realizing how much trauma we have due to COVID. So it's like now's the time that we really start working on, let's fix this. Let's let's help become resilient. Let's, let's you know, let's go get get better. Let's, you know, help our students and help help our own classrooms to make it a better place. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm going to kind of move on to our next question. 
I'm going to talk about standardized tests a little bit. Uh, so where do does the need for high standardized test scores fit into all of this? That's a that's a great question, and it's not a soundbite answer, right? Um, because we before COVID, we understood the challenges of having standardized testing uh, for everyone, and then of course for children with trauma, that's an added level of, of complexity. Uh, so we know that standardized tests are designed best for children that are. Uh, linear mathematical uh, thinkers, uh, and probably less so for um, children that are kinesthetic learners that need to, you know, uh, be physically involved. I mean, how do you use a paper and pencil or a computer-based test for children that have to express their answers slightly different, differently? Um, but the reality is that Universities are starting to do away with those, but it's very slow. And so I think we will have standardized testing way into the future. So because that's the case, so what do we do now? Because our children are having to deal with it today. Um, my, my, the things that worked really well for me was to actually prepare children for the testing environment. So you know, if they had to learn to shade in the little circle, that was something that we practiced in class throughout the year. It wasn't the day of. Uh, and the day of is really hard for children that are, you know, um, that need that extra support or even children that are very, very creative. Uh, if you have a child that's focused on a, a way of the, the way that you test, right year round and now there's a test that has such value placed on it and it looks different they can't make that transition um they we think that they should but why should they it's not something that they're familiar with so i would say from the very beginning of the school year take half an hour a week or when you do your testing uh, give them a test in different formats and just say, okay, we're going to try different formats, same information. I just want you to get ready for that. And this time just for play, I'm going to set a timer and you have to try and beat the timer um, and make it a game. So, but you do have to try to get them acquainted and familiar with that way of taking tests. Now, I think the hardest part of a standardized test are those questions where you can do D, E, and F, you know, multiples, and there's a fine discrimination as to what makes the right answer better than an other answer that's good, but not quite as good. And I think that's also something that you need to add to your regular tests. And maybe don't make it part of the test, have it as an extra question that you you, so you don't have to grade it, you know, but have it as an extra question that will not be graded, but that teaches your students why ENF is better than A and C, even though they both are very similar. So I think you need to do that from the very beginning so that they, you know, get practice and they know that there's going to be kind of tricky questions that they have to attend to. Uh, I 
this is not a very popular thought because I know that when people say, hey, you're te teaching to the test, um, that's not perceived as being a good thing. And I get it. You know, I get why that's the case. But we all know that the real learning happens when we do projects and when we get the children involved in the learning process and we make it just a little bit more complicated or they have to find a little bit more information or they have to show it slightly in a different way and they have to work with each other, you know, uh, that's when the real learning happens. Um, so we're testing and, and I sent Angel the Bloom's Taxonomy, which I know you're familiar with, but I really like this version. Angel, can you put it up by any chance? It is the, I like how you it's did the it. Triangle. Um, yeah, it's the upside down triangle uh, version, kind of the, the same that uh, Dr. Bruce Perry's group does, the uh, neurosequential model. Listeners, it'll be um, available in our, um, our links. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So getting back to what we were just talking about, when we test currently, we are basically at the first level of Bloom's taxonomy, which is information. You're testing information. And if you do a little bit more in terms of essaying, then you get a little bit into understanding. And that comprehension and understanding, and that goes from preschool all the way through um, 12th grade and into college. Uh, so we have to make sure that the children do know how to test this way. But the real learning, as I said, happens in the applying, creating, evaluating, and analyzing. And so the evaluation there is completely different. Mm -hmm. Can't do paper and pencil as easily. Uh, most of the time, it's a product that they have to produce, and you have to evaluate the product, and you have to create the evaluation tool that says, um, I think that for your classrooms, you'll still have to do the traditional testing and just make sure that it approximates standardized testing just for practice. But you also have to do what they call authentic assessment for the critical thinking parts, which start with a application through evaluation and creation. Uh, if you really, really want the children to get the information and store it in long-term storage. Uh, we all know somebody who has taken Spanish for five, six, seven, ten years, and they've been tested in the first two rungs of Bloom's taxonomy. And you try to have a conversation with them, and it is very, very difficult. They know the grammar because you can test for the grammar, but it is much harder to test for conversation. And so generally teachers of all areas, all disciplines um, teach for the first two. And so what happens is we're teaching our children only to learn what is going to be tested. And they set us up for it too. Students will say, well, what's going to be on the test? That's their first question. Yes. And when we answer that, that's all they're going to focus on. Uh -huh. And they're not going to focus on applying it, evaluating it, creating yeah. with it. They're not going to do that. 
So I would say, okay, so this is the information that's going to be in the test of the first two Bloom's taxonomy levels. And then you'll have to do something to show me that you really understand how all of this is put together. Um, and then you get really creative, you know, do a PowerPoint on this, that, and the other, and make sure that it has, uh, you know, a creative bent to it. Make sure that you add music or that you add, you add sound or that uh, it's something that you and somebody else create together or create a lesson plan for other children for this information. That one's a really good one. And you know who did that the best? I really love Norwegian education. I don't know if you have ever gotten into how they teach, but they are amazing. Right, There's okay. one school that purchased a printing press and they ran a business where the children developed the curriculum, published it and sold it. So not only did they learn the content, but they learned to be entrepreneurs and they had to learn the math of running a business. Oh, now that's that, so cool. That's wow. a great project, right? Yeah. They have all of Bloom's taxonomies covered. That is very cool. getting more funding for the school. Yeah. Wow. Well, that kind of, uh, what you're talking about kind of goes into my question, which is um, the one about for everybody that's in the classroom. Do you have specific examples of things that they can use, activities, projects, um, just different ideas that, well, Mine was more about executive functioning, critical thinking, but it's all, I mean, how do you have examples for that? For yeah, us? absolutely. Let, let's put on the, um, the uh, executive function skills so I can discuss individual ones. Um, while you're doing that, let's start with um, focus and attention. So children in general, if they get very excited or something's happening in their life, that's great they're not going to be good at listening or focusing, right? Because they're distracted. So how do you teach? And, and the difference between focus and attention is that attention is that somebody's got your eyesight, their ears, they're, they're fully attending to what you're saying. But focus is when they look at something in detail and can describe what's happening in that situation. So um, let's pick... Um, let's pick working memory. Okay. Uh, because working memory, as I said before, is, is what is suffering when you just do the first two levels of Bloom's taxonomy. We're putting, the children are putting their information into working memory. And as soon as the test happens, it's purged from working memory. It doesn't go into long-term memory. So there are lots of things that you, that you can do first to increase working memory. And the children that have trauma will probably have problems with working memory. But quite frankly, all children could learn better strategies for working memory. Um, in early childhood, there is um, there are lots of games that you, you use for working memory. One is the match to sample where you have the cards that are all laying face down and you have a, a two of each. And they need to flip one over, flip it back, and then find the pair and when they find the pair they win well you have to work on your working memory that improves working memory because they're having to remember 
the pairs that came up as they flipped them over, right? So that's an excellent uh, example of how you teach working memory. We no longer teach poetry. In the, we teach it for meaning, but we don't necessarily teach it for memorization. So I would put some of that back into the classroom, mostly because children need to know how to memorize. Uh, yeah. If they don't memorize early on, it's going to be harder for them to memorize their timetables. It's going to be hard for them to uh, memorize information that they learned three weeks ago if the test is then going to happen now. Uh, so from from early on in preschool, I think that having them learn uh, poetry, and there's some great early childhood poetry. I'm probably the only early childhood educator here, but uh, there is some great poetry that's silly and um, wonderful, and children just love it because it's so silly. So uh, Silverstein comes to mind. Uh, yeah. I was just going to say that. Yeah. Oh, my God. Children love his work. Love his work. So, you know, that's working memory. Okay, so now working memories happened. And how do you get children to go from working memory into long term memory? That is the hard part. And the short answer is projects will do it because you are asking them to use the information from working memory to actually put it into action. And that putting it into action, generally, you have to use your eyesight, maybe your smell, depending on the project that you put together, hearing, tactile, uh, creativity, and putting it together. You can test all of the content that is in information and comprehension in a project. And while they're doing the project, they are exercising how to put things from short-term memory or working memory into long-term memory. Uh, the thing about art is that it's very relaxing. And so children who have problems with self-management or um, have had a rough day or haven't slept very well, there's lots of reasons why children dysregulate. But most children really do enjoy being creative, especially in art. So what can you do with art to improve working memory? Well, if you give them a subject and then you say, hey, here are some art materials and I would like for you to draw or, you know, or doodle and use these words. You know, generally a, a new lesson has new vocabulary words. Uh, write the words, make them fancy. You can just really go crazy as art teachers. I'm sure that this is all the information you, you need to go home and really think about, oh, I can do this and I can do this and I can do this. Just incorporate whatever it is you want them to learn to, in terms of the knowledge and comprehension into a project. And I can guarantee you they're, they're just really going to love it. Um, yeah. as you get, as you get, Older children, one of the things I like to teach is mind mapping. So mind mapping is a way of putting the information, the subject, the main subject in the middle. And if you see a mind map, it has branches like a tree has branches. And each branch has 
uh, a different, uh, you know, topic within the main uh, topic that you want to uh, have them learn. So give me a topic, for instance. Um, something as general as like acrylic painting, or are you talking something more um, like maybe landscapes? No, like let's talk something around um, the pilgrims coming to the United States. Oh, okay. 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 Yes. So in the middle, there's pilgrims coming to the United States. If you start mind mapping that, then there's one branch that might be the date. Uh, there might be another branch in terms of, uh, well, what kinds of things that they need to put in place to survive. Uh, maybe another branch is uh, what happened the first winter. Uh, maybe another branch is um, relationships with the Native Americans. Uh, maybe another branch is how they formed their government. All right. Okay. How that's an art activity is that then you use colors for each of the branches or you decide that the areas that they really need to focus in need to be in red or in yellow or whatever. Um, so what you're doing is you're adding color and some artistic expression. I mean, it's not creativity in the full sense of the word because it's overstructured, but the visual that comes out is something that is much better than an outline and it has all the information and because the branches sometimes uh, link together like for instance um uh the relationships with the native Americans and their and then things that they needed to survive those are two branches that actually come together and so they make the links and right. so if you're teaching a class where they need to understand, they need to infer, or get into the critical thinking, then um, mind mapping does make that happen because you can show them where to do the links. And, and at first, obviously, you want to model it. And then you might want to slowly increase responsibility for doing different aspects until at the end, they do a whole mind map by themselves. And you can give them a lesson and maybe have a really short lecture, uh, mm -hmm. allow them to use, if they're old enough, to use their phone to get information on each of the branches and then give them colored pencils or whatever so that they can use color to make all of that. So that's partially artistic because there's color, but it's more logical and it's more about a different way of presenting the whole information. And the good thing about mind mapping is that when you're ready to study for the test, you have them whip out the mind map and then you ask questions and they have the answers right there because they have it in their mind map. And so uh, they're, you're preparing them for the test in a more uh, authentic way uh, because they're seeing how things are connected. And you ask questions about connections, you know, right. so, yeah. Um, so what oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm sorry to interrupt you here, but uh -huh. I've just had a, the light bulb came on for, I'm teaching an art appreciation class for high schoolers this year. And this would be a perfect way for them to show maybe a time period. And then the artists in there, 
how they all are connected by subject matter or by colors or stuff like that. That's awesome. Thank you very much for that idea. Well, you're very welcome. And and you can go online and, and just query mind mapping and you'll get all sorts of you know information, more than you'll ever want. Uh, there are um, uh, uh, software programs for mind mapping. I wouldn't use those with your students. Maybe you want to use those yourselves if you want to get through a mind map quickly to do a lesson plan. But uh, for for students, I would have them, you know, create one from scratch. And you can bring to class big pieces of paper, you know, mm -hmm. which are block so that they can do lots of uh, mind mapping. Um, yes. And then if you want to, uh, you know, incorporate other disciplines, then you can um, bring in other things like what kind of math did the pilgrims need to know in order to survive? Well, they had to build houses, so obviously they needed some math there. Mm -hmm. um, so you can continue to layer it uh, so that it becomes more and more complex. And the more complex you make it, then the more you're getting into critical thinking. I love that you mentioned um, other disciplines. Um, I, I spent a lot of time in the sixth grade classroom and I was the ELA teacher and I also taught social studies. And part of that, it we used that interdisciplinary where um, we knew what was happening in social studies. So, hey, we're there learning about ancient China. Our ELA was all about, um, we, we read the story Bound. Um, I wish I could remember the author. I'm really bad about doing that. Um, but then that led into, ancient, it talked about ancient China and how they bound their feet. And then that led into cultures. And then, I mean, there was just so many different things. And now you've got teachers working together. And mm -hmm. the mind mapping, you can reach out to your art teacher and say, hey, could you help us out? You know, uh, you know, what part of ancient civilization was this and then how did it lead out and how did it spread and grow the culture? I mean, there's so much you could do with that collaboration time with interdisciplinary. It is amazing. It is amazing. And sometimes, and I, I don't know if I can come up with examples, but I remember when I was a student, uh, they would talk about, about the environment and things that uh, we needed from the environment. But then I went to biology class and they used a slightly different term but it was kind of the same, but it was a biological term. And I think what would be great for us as teachers is to say, okay, in biology, they use this term and in history, they use this term. And, you know, they, they're the same way and they're different in this way. Because sometimes we leave students thinking that they are going to make those connections and they actually don't. And yeah. then it's very disruptive if they get a question about a topic and they use a terminology from biology where they learned it in history. You know, it's it's just confusing. So yeah. I think I, I love having multidisciplinary stuff. Plus, since we are educating them for workplace, right? That's exactly what happens in the workplace. You have to work with engineers. You have to work with artists. You have to work with marketing people. You have to work with the accounting department. One of the things that I loved about the uh, about the district that I worked in um, when I was hired was their PLC, their um, learning communities, professional learning communities. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that I was like, I love this. I had a planned time to meet with my ELA counterpart 
And then on Wednesdays, we met as an entire grade level. So there were six of us at that time. And I think it's five or six now, but we met with the science teacher, the math teacher, the ELA teacher and social studies, and we planned and we all sat and talked about like, how can this go into this? Okay. You guys are giving a test on that day. It just was so valuable. And I, I can't speak for them, but I know by the time I left the public school that that was starting to fizzle out that, that time that you was allotted just for that. And, um, I mean, they did it with, um, they did it thoroughly when I was there. Um, but it felt like it just kind of lost. It's just like everything else in education. It kind of lost its momentum and we just took it for granted, um, as a collective group, but yes, I love that topic. Okay. Are we ready? You know, it's too bad. Um, our brains though, I have to say are geared for that. Brains love novelty. So even if something is working, and it's no longer a novel, the brain just like, eh. Yeah. Uh, so the trick is to make it novel. Uh, if, if something is working and you see it fizzling out, somehow twist it, turn it, do something that keeps it novel, and then you'll just, you know, be able to do it longer. Uh, because uh, collaboration among teachers is so important important it's not it's it enriches whatever you do in the classroom with your students but it also enriches you as a person and it's a stress relief to know that you have the support i think it it works with uh keeping you from burning out Uh, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of reasons why uh, i'm sorry to hear that that it has fizzled out well and i know covid had a lot to do with that that we you took away that personal in-person meeting and you're so overwhelmed with being on zoom and catching your kids up and getting online lessons. And it, it it took away that whole personal um, touch that teaching has. And Mm -hmm. now we're struggling to get back to it and it, it did cause a lot of burnout. So, yeah. So here we are, we're going to, we're going to work on bringing it back. That's our purpose. Mm -hmm. That's our goal. And you know, um, being in person is the best option, but mm-hmm. zooming is not bad. Okay, think, we're you know, yeah. being able to see your expressions right now. If I were in a big classroom with lots of people, I wouldn't be able to see that. Right, and that's a really so, good point. Yeah, um, I, I think, I think there's some good to this. Yes, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so the next question is, how do we as teachers teach children to make the right choices at school, but then send them home to the same chaos that some of them experience day after day? Um, do we want them to kind of lead almost a double life, home life versus school life? How how do we go about like, I don't know, helping students through that? You know, um, I totally understand that question uh, because when I first got into teaching, I had similar concerns and it wasn't just the children in poverty. Um, I had uh, KU is in Lawrence and it's, it's a pretty affluent, especially since we had children of the professors. So um, we had very educated adults with young children and there are similar problems. You know, um, I once had a speech therapist mom that didn't realize that her daughter needed speech therapy. Uh, she was in denial. So it happens in all sorts of ways. 
Um, so I think the answer is going to surprise you. Uh, the research comes from Harvard and they have the Institute of the Developing Child. So you can go there to find out more information about this. But the research is very clear on this and I'm so happy to share it with you. A child just needs one person in their life at any one time to be fine with their uh, early trauma or with their transitional challenges, whatever it is, they just need one person. And so if that's the case, then it tells us that we as human beings learn to adapt and we know that some part of our lives are going to be chaotic. Children know this and they know that when they come to your classroom, there is mental health there. It's a happy place. It's a consistent place. It's a place where somebody cares for them, uh, that somebody looks at them in the eye and says, how are you doing today? And really mean it. If a child has just that for the rest of their lives, one person, they're going to make it. They're going to make it. So, you know, hurrah that as a human species, we are so resilient in that way. Of course, if we have more people, uh, the better. And so one of the things that I would encourage teachers to do is to teach how to make friends and how to keep friends. Because children that choose the right friends have a better uh, chance of not dropping out, of learning faster, of wanting to come to school, of not having stomach aches and everything else. And also dealing with bullying and, you know, bullying kind of is a, a reality. Uh, and I think our children need to uh, learn how to manage uh, toxic relationships, even in preschool, uh, how to walk away, how to use humor, how to, you know, if a lot of bullies just really need some um, ego yeah. uh, affirm, affirmation. Yes. So if, Children learn to say, hey, you know, um, one of the things I notice about you uh, besides all of this is how good you are at art or how good you are at, you know, singing or whatever. Well, you know, if if you do that to a bully long enough and enough children are doing that to a bully, sooner or later, that bully's going to soften up uh, right. because bullying is a symptom yes. of something, whether it's yes. early trauma or uh, learning disabilities, or, uh, you know, we could, the list is long, but it is a symptom of something. And so uh, we can teach children how to deal with bullies. Uh, the best way, honestly, is to have a lot of friends. So, you know, <laughs> have a lot of friends and somebody's bullying you, you know that somebody's going to come to your rescue. So yeah. it is important for children to learn that it is their I talk a lot about social responsibility in my posts. So it's important for children to understand that they're responsible for themselves and for others and they're for their friends. And so, uh, you know, that means that sometimes you have to stick up for your friends and sometimes you have to take your friend and guide them away from the situation. Uh, so I think those are really good ways for us to, to kind of deal with the issue of bullying and also uh, for children that have really bad home lives. Um, 
or even difficult home lives with with responsible adults, but still they're in poverty or the, the car breaks down or they don't have enough to eat. Uh, I, I think that um, even, I mean, we have adult examples of people who have had very difficult lives that have really gone on to be tremendous leaders. Mandela is an example. Right. So uh, you just have to find those examples in, in children so that they understand. So, um, you know, Harry Potter had a lot of challenges. He made it. I love yeah. that you said they, they needed that one person. And I yeah. I wasn't aware of that research. So I'm glad you said that because we've talked about ACEs. And uh, we kind of jokingly were like, Cassie and her and has her one ace. That's not any less important. But I had five or four or five. And um, I did. I had one, at least one person throughout. I had my mom, my grandpa. Mm -hmm. You go to college and I meet Andrea. And um, you j we and that's part of that learning um, to be resilient or to um, how to make friends, keep friends, pick friends. Mm -hmm. And um, I think now and I, you guys disagree or agree or whatever throw in your two cents we have a lot of helicopter parents um mm -hmm. that want to solve all the problems for their child and the child has no idea how to fix anything you know right. they were bullied here we're going to move them to this class they you know there's it's just going to continue on through the rest of your life if you're constantly plucking them up out of the situation and not teaching them how to deal with it. And it's just a scary place where you have such high suicide and depression and all, and all that for parents right now. But th that whole, that whole thing, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I was so glad that you said that you've got to kind of let them go and guide them and teach them how to deal. Yeah. You have to let them make mistakes and um, the, the helicopter parenting, one of the, that concern me is not how hard it makes it for you all to teach <laughs> that's <laughs> one of them but how hard it is for children to make mistakes and think that it's okay okay right or even fabulous you made a mistake all right now how do we fix it what are right. the issues what got you there uh what are the options do you have uh all of that is part of uh you know becoming resilient and uh, unfortunately, uh, middle class or well-to-do families are producing children that have low resilience. And right. that's why suicide is an issue. Because then the first girlfriend that drops them, oh my God, you know, this mm -hmm. is the end of the world. Well, no. If you had been managing your friendships since you were in preschool, you know that some people are just not going to like you. And that's okay. And yeah. Sometimes you're going to really want to be their friend and they don't want to be your friend. Yeah. And that's okay. I love that you're saying this because I literally had this conversation with my kiddo who's five years old yesterday. He was playing with a friend and I was there and I'm like, that friend's not being very nice. And so we came home and we had this conversation about, you know, just, you don't, you know, you can decide who your friends are. You don't have to mm -hmm. be friends with people who are not kind to you. So, yeah. And so I just, because we, like I said, literally just had that conversation. It's just yeah, such yeah. a vital lesson for kids to learn at such a young age. Um, and I love hearing how it can build that resilience for them, you know, mm -hmm. or build that 
like relationship skills, those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. I, it, I you know, it's part of your lesson plan. Actually, it's part of when you do project work. It can mm -hmm. be part of your lesson plan. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I cut you off. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think that that's, it's, I mean, the little kids, yes, super important for them. But when I get them, when they hit high school and they haven't had that, before, you know, I don't know how many times I have said in class before, what's the worst that could happen? And mm -hmm. we do this, I mean, and I teach art. So I'm like, oh, they don't know if they want to try something new or, you know, try this new, they have this great idea, but they don't know if they want to try it because they're afraid, afraid to fail. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm like, what, what's the worst that's going to happen? You have to start over again. That, that's mm -hmm. not the end of the world. You just have to start over again. Then they're, you know, my grade, my grade, you know, they don't understand that I'm not going to, I'm going to grade you on what you return in, in the end, when you say, mm -hmm. this is my final project mm -hmm. and they don't have that connection. You know, they have to do it right now and they have to do exactly what I want them to. They, they have trouble outside of the box mm -hmm. and some of them struggle so hard with that. We'll make it part of the rubric that in order to submit their project, they have to ask three people in the classroom for feedback mm -hmm. or three people to help them do something. And right. if they don't have three people to do that, you know, you they don't, don't do get it. the grade. Love that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, and maybe uh, you structure it so that they identify what their weakness. Well, my weakness is, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, combining colors. All right. Well, you know who in the classroom knows how to combine colors, John or Mary. All right. Well, since that's your weakness, you need to go to Mary so that Mary can show you how to do this. And that's part of the rubric. Right. Mm -hmm. When you tell them this is how I'm going to grade you. That's part of it. And yes. and you can add things like, you know, how do you ask somebody for help? Um, yeah, please. And thank you. Uh, does it have to be long? No. Hey, I just need you for a minute. Here's this, that, and the other. Um, also, um, you know, to your comment about friends in high school and how you manage that, um, I think that if you say, these are the three qualities of a good friend. Mm -hmm. These are the three qualities of an acquaintance. These are the qualities of a bad, toxic friend and say, here it is, let's talk about this. And then you start looking at your friends and see what, you know, evaluate what you got. Good friends, bad friends, acquaintances. You know, we, you gotta have some acquaintances. You can't be friends with everybody. Right. I do that I, when we group work. I'm mm -hmm. like, okay, this is a, a good group member. These are the, some things that a good group member would say. These are some things that a bad group member would say. These are some actions that they have. And we go through all of that. And some of them, they're like, well, why is it bad if I say, no, I'm not doing that? You know, it's it's the tone of voice. It's your body language. They don't, they they have missed that somewhere along the way. Mm -hmm. Kind of scary. I, so think about it. It is scary because they're almost adults, right? Yeah. Yes. At 18, they get to vote. They get to do all sorts of things. And their brains are just not developed enough. Exactly. So before they get that diploma, squeeze in as much as you can in terms of common west, uh, common sense and, and wisdom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and hope for the best. Yeah. 
You know, you're talking about the traits of friends, uh, um, like a good friend has this, an acquaintance has that. Um, And I, my husband and I talk about this all the time, how he has shelves, you know, they're all friends, you love them all, but your top shelf. And uh, to be quite honest, he he was like, it's like liquor, like, you know, your, your alcohol, the top shelf liquor is up here, it's the best. They're they're your go to, you're always going to have them there, no matter what the good, the bad, the ugly. And then your middle shelf is like, okay, they're there for me when I feel this way, when I feel this way, your lower shelf is kind of like your acquaintances. I have a ton of acquaintances and Mm -hmm. I have a ton of acquaintances, but I don't have very many top shelf friends. And, Mm -hmm. um, definitely in this group, I've got my top shelf friends and maybe a few others, but most of them fall, you know, and I I don't want to like say that about bad about any of my friends. I have wonderful friends, but we've tried to teach this with my son, um, Mm -hmm. because I was 43 years old before I, I met Jamie and he was like, put them on shelves. And sometimes they go up and down, you know, like, okay, well, I thought you were here, but you're really here and you drift apart. You do different things, but you always have that one person in your life. And, um, so I'm looking at our timer here and I, I'm not trying to overstep if you guys have any more to, to throw in there, but that was my last question was teaching resiliency. And I think we've just like hit the nail on the head and we just rolled right into it. Um, (laughs) So, Dr. Mel, you guys have anything to add or ask before just we run out of time? Thank you. Thank you it so is- much for coming on. And I've enjoyed this conversation a lot. I have too. It was awesome to meet mm-hmm. you. And I yes. will definitely be joining your LinkedIn and your <laughs> whatever you have. Yes. <laughs> your following just grew. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah. Well, it, so- is, it is truly my, my pleasure and honor to work with teachers. Your job is not easy, but it is so important. It is so important. And and some things that church has told us is easy and ma- makes your life better or gives you a different perspective or makes you more creative or makes you less stressed. Or I mean, that's, that's what we are here for, for each other. Uh, that just happens to be my area. But you know, if we had a longer time to chat, I'm sure I would learn a lot of things about art and what you're doing and how your children are prospering from it. Um, so I thank you for choosing this profession. It is an honorable one, for sure. Thank you so much, Dr. Mel. Well, um, I'm going to go ahead and sign off for 3R Educational Solutions and um, our teacher panel, Andrea McConaughey, Cassie Lupins, and of course, our guest, Dr. Mel. And um, Dr. Mel, do you want to go ahead and, so I don't butcher your name, say your name and give us your website so people can uh, follow and uh, learn more about what it is you do. Oh, well, thank you, um, Angel. Appreciate it. So my full name is uh, Mabel Kinghaka. And um, it's a Spanish name for so that J is pronounced like an H. Uh, my website is um, childhoodtoday.net. Of course, you put all the W's up front. And um, I'm in LinkedIn. And um, my friends call me Mel, so you're welcome to call me. I use Dr. Mel as a professional name because it's it kind of rolls off the tongue and I don't have to deal with my last name. <laughs> Um, 
and and I definitely use it around children because I'm Latinx and I just want children to understand that you can uh, reach high levels of um, of education if you stick with it and and it's important enough to you. So uh, you're all welcome to call me Mel. We'd love to hear from you. Hope we can stay in touch. And Angel, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in today. If you enjoyed today's conversation, join us every Wednesday for more conversations about what's happening in today's educational world. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And you can find more information about what we offer at 3reducationalsolutions.com. That's the number three, letter R, educationalsolutions.com.